This is Daniel King, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Wellness. What's going on, George Fox family? It's uh, good to see everyone. Today, I'm so excited to have my guest um, come and join us. Her name is Erica Barber. She's a physician. Um, she's an internal medicine physician and then has a specialty in gerontology. And uh, we're going to kind of ask her about that here in a minute. So we're really super excited to have you here today. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for inviting me. Yeah, no, I'm so excited to have you here. I just wanted to ask if you can maybe share with us like your journey as a professional, you know, like what kind of drew you to um, being a physician and then what drew you into maybe internal medicine and then getting a specialty or certificate in gerontology? Sure. I, I loved school. <laughs> I'll just put that out there. I am an official nerd. I love to learn. And, um, and, and so the idea of extra learning beyond college was just fine with me. Mm -hmm. But I remember a real clear moment. Um, my dad and sister and I were, were driving to a, a site. To, he's an architect, and so we were going to do a housing uh, community service project together. And we were listening to a Josh McDowell radio show um, uh, about medical needs uh, across the world in an area where there's not a, a lot of health care and, and certainly not a lot of uh, medical professionals. And I just kind of had this moment like, I could do that. <laughs> I was in high school and I thought, maybe I want to be a, um, a doctor and I want to go where there's not very many doctors. Mm. That'll just kind of be my my guidance. Mm. And, um, and so that idea stuck. And uh, I went to college at Trinity in San Antonio, Texas. Um, followed my uncle's footsteps to go to medical school at Creighton University in yep. Omaha. Um, and and while I was there, I uh, was part of just a real dynamic student body. And 20 of us in our first class of med school went over to Kolkata, India, and worked with the missionaries of charity there, mm -hmm. um, and came back and did my internal medicine residency at uh, St. Vincent uh, Hospital here in Portland, and then went back to University of Nebraska to do a geriatrics fellowship. Mm. What a story. Have you ever told Josh McDowell about your story, how he <laughs> helped you become a physician? No, and I guess there's a key part of this story of, well, what happened? Well, I'm in Oregon here. I'm not abroad. Right. So what happened? Um, while I was at Creighton, and actually while I was in India, I was writing letters back and forth to this cute boy I had met at church. Mm. And um, he was in Ecuador at the time doing some medical work there. And I just thought, you know, if I partner... Um, with Nick Barber in life. I, I think I think things will go way better than if I try to go out and change the world myself. And um, so uh, Nick is a hematologist oncologist mm. in Salem mm. and a musician, and he makes me laugh. He helps me not take myself too seriously. And I for sure made the right decision yeah. taking that pathway. Yeah, that's such a that's such a great story. How is it being two physicians in a home? Do you guys talk about medicine a lot, or is that something you try not to do? Do you just try to play music and try to get away from the things that we're doing, or is it more of a combination? Would you say? Yeah, it's it's absolutely woven into the fabric of our lives and how we think about things. Mm -hmm. Our dinner time conversation. You know, we have four kids, and they roll their eyes. They uh, they know that they know way more anatomy and physiology than their right. peers and <laughs> yeah uh uh and and they don't see that as a good thing they they see that as oh mom you've made us crazy um it's been really helpful though to, as as we encounter medicine's not what you think it is when you go in like uh it's it's not this um glamorous profession of um, mm -hmm. 
always being appreciated and always making a diff, always feeling like you're making a difference. There's a lot of days where you wonder, am I making a difference? Mm. Am I doing the right thing for these folks? Is life so busy in all the documentation we're doing and whatnot? Um, am I missing something? Am, am I making a mistake? Um, am I showing up for everybody the way they're needing me to? Mm. So it's a hard it's a hard path, and you don't know that going into it, mm -hmm. um, or or at least many of us don't. We think, oh, we're good at math and science, and we want to <laughs> be with people. Let's let's choose medicine. But I think the real question is, do you want to be beside people in their hardest moments and? Mm -hmm. In suffering, in physical suffering or mental, um, do you want to be with patients? And that, I think, is the guiding question. And and that's really, I think, how Nick chose oncology. He he did a rotation in residency, and he thought, you know, even when all my treatment options are gone. Mm -hmm. I want to be sitting with patients and be present with them and for them to know they're not alone mm -hmm. in this journey. And, the, and in a similar way, that's how I chose geriatrics. There was no one else I wanted to be with more than folks who had, at, at this time, uh, when I was going through geriatrics training, it was the World War II veterans mm -hmm. and um, the women who had been at home <laughs> during World War II and, and those who had lived through really hard times in our country and to sit with them and, and see their demeanor and how they saw their daily life now was so attractive to me. And I just wanted to be with them. So... That's how I ended up on the, the path of extra training in geriatrics when that's not a common pathway for people to pick. No. I mean, the fact that you actually had the ability to self-reflect and to really think to yourself, like, because like you said, it changed, right? I mean, from the profession of when you thought as a high schooler to college, to going through med school and then doing residency and then doing another certificate, traveling the world in you know, in missions, recognizing and self-reflecting like this is I want to sit with these people mm -hmm. and use, um, you know, my training or the training that you received. And but these are the people I want to be with, you know, even if it's suffering for a short period of time or long suffering. Right. Which we see in both. And I think that's such an interesting um, self-reflection. How do you think you got there? Was there anything else, I mean, besides what you just shared with me that allowed you to really self-reflect on that? Like, these are the people I want to sit with or, you know, because I know there's a group that I work with that a lot of people don't really find it, you know, and I would just share it's just working with chronic pain patients. Sure. There's no one else I'd rather be with. Than chronic pain patients. Yeah. Wow. And it's because um, I think it's personal. I think that um, my grandmother was dying of, of a cancer and she had chronic pain and I sat with her as a 10 year old boy yeah. and I was her um, primary caregiver. I think some of the people who've listened to this have heard me share the story and I know this is not, you're not interviewing me, but I just want to share, but I've never heard anyone put it that way. And I sat with her for years um, being with her until she passed on and, um, Sitting with um, someone who's in pain is one of the hardest things, but I saw her faith through it all. And um, I remember thinking to myself, it's so, pain is so complex at the age of 10. And so when I meet patients who have chronic pain or persistent pain, it's that, it's the wanting to know their story and to kind of know about, you know, how pain started and where it started. Mm -hmm and the journey that they're going through and walking with them and uh, and uh, helping them maybe understand a little bit about some of the trainings that I received. But there was no, nobody else that I'd rather be with. So this is why I responded in surprise. Yeah. The chronic pain 
group of patients is usually for medical professionals um, one of the least <laughs> desired patients to come across, you know, your mm-hmm. your appointment list for the day. And I think it's because we as medical providers, we want to fix things and we want to have something to offer. And a, and a patient who is struggling from chronic pain mm-hmm. makes us feel like providers were what we've got is insufficient. Mm-hmm. We we don't have the answer. Either either we don't understand the underlying trigger of the pain or we not the understanding but we can't treat that. We can't take take that away or we don't understand why the the nerves are still signaling to the brain that there's pain there. Yeah. And and we can't find that source and we can't treat it. And so as a medical provider it feels like, ugh, what do I have to offer? You yeah. know, I, I I don't have anything. And so I think um, that gets manifest in a lot of ways. And many chronic pain patients, I think, don't feel heard. Be- but it's it's not really something to be taken personal. It's <laughs> it's that um, it, it's hard when you don't have something, when you can't take it away. Mm-hmm. If that's your goal is to take it away and you can't, you don't have the tools to do it, then... It's, well, then what is, what can I offer? What can I do in this experience? So how come you didn't shy away? What did you have to bring to that Mm. interaction that made it an attractive thing and somewhere where you wanted to stay? Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of talked about this, but for me, um, I really never wanted to be a healthcare provider. I had no really desire. It was actually a vocation. Uh, when I accepted Christ as really as my Lord and Savior at the age of 21, like I've always grown up in church, but when I really accepted the Lord at 21, it was a, it was quite a transformation. And what I sensed was that I was supposed to help people. And that can mean lots of different things. And so I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And the Lord just kept showing me um, that physical therapy might be a way. And even through PT school, I always doubted. Hmm. I was not one of those PT, and I did excellent through the program. It wasn't, I felt like I had to be really faithful to that, but it wasn't that I was really intrigued by it. I wasn't intrigued in exercise or movement. I was actually really intrigued by pain. Like, what does it mean to have pain? Why is so many people living with low back pain? Why does 80% of the population have pain? or a low back pain. I've always been curious about that. And so what happened was my love for the spine made me interested in pain. And then I started working in a multidisciplinary team and I worked with a really great um, surgeon. I worked with a lot of great physicians, worked with OKPTs who thought that they could um, modify pain by different modalities. And I wasn't that interested in it. But I opened my own private practice for 10 years and my, my clinic became a pain clinic. Hmm. Sure. And, Word of mouth spreads. Right. And <laughs> primarily um, spine pain, which okay. is very common, as you know. And then fibromyalgia and yep. then chronic pain syndromes. So I started seeing a gamut of it. And I loved it. But my training wasn't sufficient enough, even though I had a lot of training in um, manual therapy and these kinds of things. And so it's one of the reasons why when I when I felt the second calling um, in my vocation, which was to come into academics. So I was willing to leave a successful private practice and count the cost, as it says in the word. Hmm. And my wife was faithful to that. And uh, we felt the vocation of actually leaving. Um, So we ended up at George Fox uh, because there was a neuroscientist and a couple of researchers that I wanted to work with and um, wanted to understand pain better. And I would say that in 20 years of practice, I'm more passionate about pain, persistent pain and chronic pain, because mm. I'm more passionate about the people who have that. So I don't think I will ever, um, that will always be someone I want to sit with and work with. And I would tell you one of the key components of it is actually the biopsychosocial spiritual model that we use also known as person-centered care. And so I had to kind of 
learn how to connect the really connect the bio to the psychosocial. I understood the bio fairly well. I think we mm-hmm. both do, right? Mm-hmm. We, like you said, my kids know more anatomy than most, you know, <laughs> most kids, right? We're talking about the quadratus lumborum and, and thing, you know. Caleb's probably rolling his eyes, you know, paraspinal musculature and, you know, glute max versus meat and minimus, right? So this okay. is co- normal conversation. Our favorite is the platysmus. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So we can nerd out. But what I also understood was about um, was about how uh, depression, anxiety, and uh, this kinesiophobia, fear of movement, all huh. of these things are tied into how our body feels and how powerful movement is and how so many people who are in pain have been told not to move. And it's really fun to find meaningful movement. Mm-hmm. Everyone's got it. Mm-hmm. If it's to get down on the floor to play with your dog, if it is to just go for, you know, work in your garden, I try to find meaningful movement for everybody. And that's where we begin. Sure. And then we pace them, right? And it's like dosing of medicine. And I've seen patients now um, do things that they they never thought it could be done. And I get to share that with my colleagues, but also with um, the literature that I'm, I'm, I'm interested in doing more research around it and also my students. So that's how I ended up in pain. Um, so thanks for asking. Yeah. Never had, you know, it's like, it's always, <laughs> I'm supposed to interview you, right? But you asked me about pain. And so here you go. So. Well, I. It, it reminds me, as, as you were talking, I was thinking of Dr. Paul Brand. Yeah, yeah. Do you know him? Yeah, of course. Hand uh, orthopedic yep. um, uh, for, in India, and he worked with leprosy patients, yep. and um, he writes about the gift of pain. Yeah. Because when that's absent yep. and it's supposed to be there, there's a whole lot of uh, trouble and complications that can come from that. But I think what I hear you saying is is even... In the chronic pain, mm-hmm. um, there's there's so much to explore there uh, of of how to to ease suffering mm-hmm. and how to be in the suffering and not and not run away from it. Yeah, one of the things that we talk about a lot is recalibration or reprocessing pain, and it's it's phenomenal how. Mm-hmm how people respond to that because they thought for sure they could never change the narrative around it. And a lot of it is around trauma. And so one of the things we're recognizing is a lot of the pain, the trauma doesn't happen when you're an adult, it's usually when you're young. Mm -hmm. And so we actually talk about that and we discuss like the, for early on pain traumas that they've had. And we work through those things, which for a lot of people who aren't interested in the psychosocial or the bio narrative, work is hard for them to sit through but for me it's like that's how you get to know a person's journey and then i tie it in with pros which is patient reported outcome measures which makes it a little interesting because a lot of people don't expect that but like it helps me like understand the pros of a patient from the narrative and then that allows me to set the trajectory of the dosing of the mindful the meaningful movement hmm. and then it all comes together and then the goals that the patients want and it's been a phenomenal I mean, just God-given gift to me, uh, such meaning. I'm so glad you made the move here. Because <laughs> in private practice, I'm sure you were, you know, making a big difference sure. in individual lives. But to have an educator um, influencing, speaking into the lives of students, yep. class after class, and making them want to understand and chronic pain and be there yeah. when most of us are heavy in the biologic yeah. um passion and focus and um <laughs> try to get through those those other components of education but students can tell yeah. whether there's enthusiasm there or belief in what we're doing or yeah. hope that of uh research and what we're doing and um, they can tell that. So I I am grateful to you and your wife for making that move into academia. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> thank you for asking. I We didn't expect this to happen, but we're so, <laughs> I mean, in a way, it's just such a great, I mean, I don't know, it's it's so nice to talk to somebody about it. Hmm. So I want to thank, really, again, thank you for um, asking me that question. And, and so I'm going to kind of throw it back to you. Sure. Right? Sure. So. Kind of tell me about the, just for the viewers, like what's the age bracket when we talk about it? And I know that aging has to do with everything, 
because we're all going to age. Yeah. Or a lot of us are going to age. We are aging now. We are, thank you. Right. So we're all aging now. So this is not just a topic for people who are older. Right. Right. This is a topic that we that should be discussed like openly. Right. Right. And I think the more we talk about it, the better it actually is as we we're all aging. Right. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about like gerontology, like what's the age bracket that we're primarily in your specific, you know, study? Sure. Um, yeah, we, we typically define older adults as 65 years and older mm. with the huge caveat um, that that is a, we're talking about a very heterogeneous group of people. Mm. Um, and especially, you know, I, I would say we, we break it down further into subsets, the 65 to 74 year old. Okay. And and the seventy five to eighty five and then eighty five plus. So mm. that, um, so when I when when people hear that I'm a geriatrician and and they make jokes about oh you're the kind of doctor I need I'll say well you're not in your nineties yet so I don't, you know <laughs> you know you got a long way to go right but there are folks who um, I worked for a long time in a an interdisciplinary team that would care for frail adults. And, and there are a lot of people in the 55 to 65 year olds range who, um, for varied reasons, um, are experiencing life physiologically aged, mm -hmm. even if chronologically we wouldn't put them in that category. So uh, on paper, the older adult is 65 and older, and that's what we base our research in, in geriatrics and whatnot. Oh, that's interesting. So just going to ask another question. What do you think it looks like to age well? <laughs> right. And it's something that I know this is kind of the heart of why I really wanted to talk with mm -hmm. you, because I think you have such great insight. I mean, you've seen it internationally. You've seen it here, right? Mm -hmm. And you've studied it more than most people. Like, what do you think it looks like to age well? Okay, I'll, I'll give you the textbook answer. Okay, I want that. And then, and then let's see how that sits. Okay. Okay. So the textbook answer is there were a, a couple of aging researchers, Jack Rowe and Robert Cahan, and in in the nineteen eighties they put together probably this the the best known and accepted definition of healthy aging or mm. successful aging. And it's a biomedical model. And it also acknowledges that aging is a very heterogeneous process and very influenced by the individual. So in pediatrics, you know, we can look at the 12 month old and it's, there's some heterogeneity, mm -hmm. certainly. Um, but not nearly in the realm as, as a, a certain age in, in geriatrics like we talked about. So acknowledging that heterogeneity, um, their definition of aging contains three realms. Okay. First, avoiding disease mm -hmm. and disease-related disability. Okay. Um, so in my mind, I think of that as we're not avoiding the normal wear and tear. Mm -hmm. We've... Our bodies are supposed to be used and do its thing. So um, there's normal wear and tear that's going to happen in each of our systems. Mm. But what we're talking about is avoiding disease, avoiding the pathology that um, either comes from neglect of our bodies or is outside of our control, mm. um, but, but maybe that there's preventative measures for. Got it. So that's one, avoiding disease and disease-related disability. Two is preserving physical and cognitive function. Mm. Sounds a lot easier than oh, yeah. it can, is. Yep. And three is maintaining engagement. Mm. And that's probably surprised me more than anything else. Yeah. We are social creatures. Mm. And it doesn't matter the, the half of us who are introverts. There is a, a need to be in community with one another that I think becomes much more obvious mm. in our older years. Yeah. There's a social isolation and a, a loneliness that can happen very easily mm. if not intentionally 
um, if not intentionally guarded against or prepared for or fostered throughout life. Yeah. And, and I was surprised um, looking at geriatric trends recently about, um, what are they saying? Let me give you the exact numbers here. Of, of those 65 years and older mm-hmm. uh, in the community, 20% of men live alone. Mm. And 33% of women live alone. Oh, that surprised me. One in five men, Mm. one in three women live alone. Then when you get above age 75 years old, Mm. uh, 25% of men live alone and 44% of women live alone. Wow. And when you live alone, there's there's also higher risk of poverty, Mm -hmm. um, which we certainly see in geriatrics a lot. Um, But there's... There is a huge need to be with others, to get outside of our own mind, I think, as part of it, to have a purpose mm-hmm. outside of ourselves mm-hmm. as part of it. Um, we need each other to laugh. Mm. We need each other to, um, <laughs> to, and we need each other's strengths. Yeah. You know, none, none of us have it all. And so, um, I've been surprised at what a huge element engagement truly is for successful aging. Yeah. So um, I can see why that is part of this definition of successful aging. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting, the definition, right? I, w- I was actually pretty surprised with the last one, too, when you shared it with me. Uh, but like thinking about some patient examples, right, or just talking to some friends and family, I mean, I would say that's pretty common mm-hmm. to see those who are aging well to hmm. have more social engagement, mm-hmm. right? I mean, have you seen that as well too? Like, do you notice a difference when they bring their spouse or their partner with them to a visit or when you're seeing that or they're talking about their families versus someone who's not, right? right? Have you seen right. that in, in your practice? Sure. And I've seen patients who live alone who are still thriving. They're very connected socially. And, right. Um, <laughs> With the onset of the pandemic, my mom and her siblings, mm. she comes from a large Irish family, they started Zooming with one another, mm. and they're spread out all over the, actually internationally. Um, and so every week they get on Zoom call and and talk with one another. And they've always been close and respected one another, but they're busy and had their own lives. and. And now there's this element of connectedness in each other's daily lives. Mm-hmm. And they're reading books and they're sharing ideas together. And it's so fun. I can call any one of them up and and invariably that week's Zoom call is going to come up in the conversation <laughs> right. because um, it's life-giving. Yeah. They, they, I'm so proud of them. They are living so well in this um, season of life um, and valuing one another and valuing mm. each other's thoughts and they're constantly wanting to grow and learn. Yeah. There's there's not like the ceiling of uh, I'm past the season of learning. Right. Um, and and <laughs> I just think what a what a silver lining that has come out from a, an awful world global pandemic that they have discovered each other yeah. anew. And I, I'm sure they'll just keep on going with that in, indefinitely that time together. But I love it because several of them live alone. Yeah. And um, it doesn't, the, so the, it's not the living arrangement itself that, it is so important, mm. um, although that's very important, and, and we can go into how the living arrangement helps with aging. But, yeah. but I'm talking about on a on a bigger level, having connection with regular connection with others, mm. and and the the purpose and the forward thinking that that provides. Yeah. Um, I think is a great example. Yeah. I love how you're talking about connections. 
you know, versus just like a data point, you know, of like mm-hmm. living, living, you know, with someone or by yourself. Because I've seen relationships, even though they're together, they're not connected and they feel it might be sometimes so alone. Yes. Right. Because yes. one Good might point. be. Yeah. One might be healthy. Someone may not be as healthy. Going back to the first point. And someone might be trying to avoid a disease or have a disease. And the other one might be. And I've seen this. And it, draw, it I could see this turmoil that's happening in this home, right? And wondering, like, one person's always talking about death. And the other mm-hmm. one's, you know, trying to go on a, you know, cruise, right? So it's a totally different, you know, experience. And I love how you're talking about connectiveness because that is something that I know that so many people have shared with me with with um, the population I serve, too. They want to be connected. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think that no matter what, you know, season, that's like a way innate part of who we are, you know, is to want to stay connected. And I think that's just amazing to see that. I also wanted to ask you, and you can share more of those stories. I love that. I think that's amazing, (laughs) right? But maybe this understanding of like resiliency then, right? Because to try to avoid disease, or imagine if you do get a disease, right? That you're trying to avoid because that's one of the things. So you're not aging well now, right? And say that you aren't as connected, right? Maybe you having some of these issues. Like what are the things that you've seen that works and what makes people resilient, you know, from that? Yeah. And I think when people question that definition of aging, we just talked about one of the things they'll say is, well, what is successful aging? That kind of makes it seem like if you don't have these things, you're a failure, you're failing in aging. And so there's some questions about that. And also for any one of us, our definition of successful aging is going to be different. Yeah, It's probably largely influenced by whom in our life have we watched age Mm. and what about it inspired us and made it ring true. That's how I want to be that and it's, I think a piece of it is the resiliency you're talking about. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily the people who are super lucky and have had no trials in their aging mm-hmm. and um, that we're wanting to be like. It's the people who have had hard things happen to them through no fault of their own. Um, or maybe it did come from poor decisions, but now they're in this this spot and how are they going to handle it? And and watching how different older adults respond to the setbacks of aging, Mm. the limitations and the loss, Mm -hmm. whether it's loss of a certain function or loss of relationships. through death and whatnot, that um, watching how older adults walk through that I, is fascinating to me, and 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 probably probably the area of geriatrics that I am most attracted to as a person deep inside, mm-hmm. and feel like. I get more out of it, the experience than what I can bring mm-hmm. um, with medical knowledge. So <clears throat> I'll, I'll tell a couple stories here. Yeah. One is my uncle Ron. He was a very successful surgeon uh, out of Texas. Hmm. And um, he got the diagnosis of, I don't know if it was Alzheimer's dementia or vascular, it was some sort of dementia. Hmm. And one would think he knows what dementia entails. He knows the loss of, I mean, academics and intellectual life and growing was such a big part of him and and, and his conversations with family and friends. Mm-hmm. He knew that he knew he was where this journey was going. He knew what it meant for his independence and living later on in life. He knew what it would mean for the change in relationships. Mm. And yet what I did not see in him was uh, a spirit of being despondent, which I, I kind of think of as a lack of um, courage for the future mm. and a lack of hope. Mm. 
Mm. I did not see that. So whatever is the opposite of despondency, yeah. I, I don't know if that's um, uh, gratitude and hope. Right. Um, he had a, a real sense of realism. He knew what he was getting into, but he maintained his um, confidence in his purpose. Hmm. He maintained his confidence in his human dignity. Yeah. It was okay if if other people were going to need to care for him in the future. He was solid in his identity. And faith is, when I asked my aunt, you know, later, his wife, you know, tell me about what got him through that. She, she'll say his faith, that he... Mm-hmm. He knew his identity and his dignity as a human being was in way more than the function of his hippocampus, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. His personhood was so much greater than that. And he was body and soul together. And even if his body was going to decline on him, yeah, he was going to maintain wholeness of person all the way through. Mm. And it was up to the rest of us <laughs> <laughs> to... Um, appreciate that and and be willing to go in through the change in relationship um which is hard oh that's so hard yeah when we talk about loneliness i mean i think of a a patient with dementia and their spouse or their caregiver mm-hmm. that aloneness one might feel to be still in the same house yep. but not have that connection you used to have yeah but um, my uncle and aunt were still able to look each other in the eyes and find each other mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and hold on to that sense of dignity and purpose. Yeah. Um, and, and then the other thing my aunt said about him is he was always grateful. He mm-hmm. never lost, let an opportunity pass to not say thank you to those who were caring for him or to say thank you to her his wife Mm -hmm. and not all patients mind brain Mm -hmm. (laughs) physiology and transformation in dementia allows for that. Yeah. You know, sometimes, um, the frontal lobe (laughs) is really necessary to be able to express that gratitude. But he, he had the habit of being grateful Mm -hmm. for the small things and he kept that all the way through. So in my mind, that is, he, he didn't fit that definition of aging successfully, right? Because right. he wasn't able to maintain that cognitive impairment. That's right. But he took it. He took the cards that were dealt to him and, and held on to that sense of, of hope. And, um, and as a result, <laughs> those around him were different. Mm. he he was a gift in his need um to those around him the the caregivers who took care of him loved dr gum yeah they loved it they loved um how he would uh find any chance he could around the memory care unit to serve others Mm. and um and to us as his family Gosh, what a gift to have been able to watch him, yeah. how he faced um, something like that. And, and in his, in that journey, don't you think that it gave, cre- it gave credibility to his profession of faith? Yeah. That it was his brokenness and his um, struggles that, that made his faith um, kind of re- be lifted up as this is real to yeah. him. Yep. This is not just a, a, a feel-good profession. Yeah. This, this is tried and true to his very core. Mm. And, um, and what, a, what a gift that is to the rest of us, yeah. you know, as we look forward to our unknown future, to be able to have people around us who are these examples. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what a wonderful story. So thank you, first of all, for sharing that. You also shared early on on how you've 
went to medical school kind of some of his foot, foot footsteps, right? Yes, actually, this is a different physician uncle. <laughs> So there you go. They're all around you, right? I do have good examples all around me. That's right. But I loved how you shared also with the opportunity of gratitude, even in suffering. Um, I don't, I think that that is a really important part. You know, how do you have gratitude? When, and I know that he would probably even say maybe he's not, it's not suffering, right? It's, he might call it something else, but I call it that because I think that that's that's what a lot of people say to me. It's like I'm suffering. Mm-hmm. Do something. Mm-hmm. Help me. Mm-hmm. Right? That's different than gratitude and faith rising up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's more than the core of like faith integration. I think it means that faith is all around you. It's not just the core of you. It's like among you and the way you see life and do life. And um, yeah, I. I what would you say to someone who comes into your office though and says, I'm suffering, mm-hmm. like help me? Like, wh- Well, the suffering's real. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's, I'm glad they're telling me. I, I, mm. I want to hear it. I, I want to know what's going on. I want to know how I can help. Yeah. I want to be present in that pain. Yeah. Um, and, and sure, I got ideas of, and, <laughs> you know, in different scenarios of what can we do to to ease the suffering. Um, so first off, I, I would say that, that I, um, I, I want people to be real in, in articulating their loss and their grief, and I want to grieve with them. Mm. But there is never no matter how bad things get, there's never nothing to be grateful for. Yeah. You know? Yep. We could, there's, I, I read that of those adults 65 and older, one third of them have a disability. Wow. And that could be, the most common is an ambulatory disability of sure, some sort. Sure. So not able to get around as well as they used to. Right. But there's hearing disability. Right. There's vision. Mm-hmm. So let's say, um, <laughs> I tweaked my knee yesterday and on the worst day possible to do it, I, I had a bunch of physical things I needed to do to get ready for a house demo remodel. <laughs> right. So it's the worst possible time. Um, and, and yet as I took a moment there, uh, I remembered, you know, it, as a geriatrician, I'm watching people use their brokenness in, in their body's function or their loss in aging. So many of them will take that loss and say, I'm going to use this as an opportunity. Mm. Uh, if they're a person of faith, I'm going to use it as an opportunity to rely on God instead of what I've taken for granted and had my own ability to get around yeah. for so you know, yep. or I'm going to use this as an opportunity to experience pain and suffering more fully mm-hmm. so that I can be more fully available to the per- next person I meet who's dealing with suffering and pain. Yeah. Or even if that's not an option, somebody's homebound and they're not sure they're going to see anybody. Yeah. Uh, a person of faith might be able to say, you know, this suffering is not in vain. It, this is a chance to, um, be, to, to encounter the suffering of Christ mm. done in love um, and experience that just approach that mystery of why he would go through suffering yeah. for love. Yeah. Our own suffering is a is a chance to approach that mystery mm-hmm. in a in a a unique way mm-hmm. that we we don't approach when we're just approaching it on an intellectual level, but not experiencing suffering ourselves. So 
So anyway, going back to my story of (laughs) the tweak knee, I'm thinking here I preach of the, of seeing our (laughs) loss as an opportunity to rely on the strength of our God rather than our own strengths or to, to see opportunity for gratitude in the middle, in the midst of loss. And, And so it was good. It was good for me to just, uh, experience it myself. Uh, and you, you know, even though it's just momentary here that, yep. I, I, do I really believe what I say? Yeah. You know, yeah. this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we walk through fire. And is it gonna, um, is our, is our faith real as it goes through a trial? Um, or, or am I just speaking empty words? So, so back to the person with disability or suffering, even in the loss of an ability to, to get around um, without a, a wheelchair or walker or assistance, maybe there's still an ability to read, mm-hmm. to see, mm-hmm. to see beauty. Or maybe there's still an ability to hear music. Yeah. Or maybe there's still an ability to smell spring. Mm-hmm. So there's there's always something that we can as humans reach out and and be grateful for. Um, but that doesn't mean to minimize or yep. not talk about the suffering or you know just put on a happy grateful face. I don't mean that. I mean be a realist. Right. <laughs> and in the middle of those yep. real trials to acknowledge yep. the the good, including the oftentimes the trials are good. Yep. I was talking to an uncle, one yep. a, um a different uncle, not a physician. He's a um a priest and he has really had to go through the fire. He has had an inflammatory bowel disease diagnosis for about 10 years. Wow. And he is in and out of the hospital with chronic pain, mm-hmm. um, recurrent surgeries, inability to eat as mm-hmm. he um, normally would at different periods, and is now um, in an assisted living facility wow. in his 70s, way too young. Yeah, yeah. You know? yep. And he is a vibrant... Um, life-giving individual. Hmm. So he's he's another one that I've drilled in. Come on, tell me your secrets, right, you know? Right. Why do I see this? Um, it's almost like it's a determination. Yeah. It, it's a resiliency. It's like what you've talked about. There, there's a resiliency of gratitude there um, no matter what. Yeah. And, and it's hard what he has gone through, but he doesn't, he hasn't lost his hope in, in the future. He's, mm. he knows his purpose. He knows the goodness and beauty that he's living in and that he's also exuding through what he's going through. Yeah. And he is a recovering alcoholic. Mm. And he was telling me, oh gosh, what were his words? He said, in, in the AA manual, there's there's a line, cling to the thought that the dark past is the greatest possession you have. Mm-hmm. So for those who accept <laughs> that suffering and let, let it change them, mm-hmm. um, for good, as those in AA are... On the path to do, yep. That dark past has changed them. They're they're never going to be the same. And in in my uncle's struggle with alcoholism in the past has been gift to person after person after person. He told me, no, Erica, nobody's ever invited me to coffee to um, to hear about my virtue. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know? Right. But he's certainly had a whole lots of a lot of invitations for coffee to talk about getting 
getting through yeah. real suffering yeah. and, and moving past mistakes and, and finding life um, in, in the life we have. Yeah. And all of us have a blank page, hmm. including tonight. It's a blank page. And the rest of our time here on this planet, it's this blank page. And, and, and we're not done. We, we haven't lost our opportunity to be a gift to others and to, to appreciate the goodness around us yeah. um, until we take our last breath. Yeah. Well, I'm going to sh- say something to you. I love your family. <laughs> I've learned I've learned so much, but I think that that's the thing, right? It's um, you know, I think we learn sometimes the best from from stories and experiences. I really do. I mean, I understand you and I've taken some taken some really great courses as well too. I'm not saying that's not a good way, but I just think I've learned so much actually from mm. just listening to the stories, right? And real stories. Um, that you've shared, and I would say to you, I've, I feel like I'm starting to understand what it feels like to age well. I understand the definitions, and I've heard those before, but the stories to me doesn't it, it? It ministers to our souls, and it ministers to like real wounds that we own, we have, of things that we have struggled with, and wondering is it worth being grateful for, mm-hmm. or is that something we want to hide, you know, or is that something we want to be little? And I think that that comes to shame versus gratitude, you know, when you're not able to express those things. And I loved how you were able to share those two stories that are in a way similar, but very different, right? Both about suffering, both about that, um, looking at death, mm-hmm. you know, and what that looks like. And I think that for me, I've learned so much from the definition, but as much from people's stories. And I wanted to sh- thank you again for sharing those things and for really bringing that to us. I just, you know, we're going to kind of conclude, but I wanted to ask, is there anything else that you want to share? I always end hmm. this way, right? Because I think that, you know, we we have this really great conversation for an hour. Yeah. But it's like sometimes it's like there's there's maybe one thing I want to talk about. So I just want sure. to kind of give it back to you. It's like, is there anything you want to share? Yeah. Can I take off my geriatrician hat and and put on... Um, one who's just grateful for scripture. Yeah, please do. This. Yeah, please do. You know, Isaiah 40 talks about um, all people are like grass. Mm. The grass withers, the flower fades, yeah. but the word of God stands forever. Yeah, amen. So we all, our life is like a day. You know, it's it's passing. And for for those of us who have a vision that our life is not just about (laughs) Mm. our our own longevity here, but we're about something more. We're part of something bigger and, and we're, we're going somewhere Mm. with this. Um, It's, I I think the scripture really (laughs) illuminates for me aging in in two distinct ways, and they're both out of the Gospels. So one is we're in this Easter season right now. So it's after Jesus is his resurrected resurrection, and he goes to the upper room, and he finds his disciples scared and hiding from um, the authorities. And he goes up to Thomas, and he says, Thomas, um, touch my wounds. Mm-hmm. Touch my woundedness. Mm-hmm. And this this is not from me. This is from um, my uncle Patrick, the priest, uh, when I was t- talking with him about uh, about suffering. Mm. And he said, Erica, if we f- if we follow that example of of Christ, it's it's in touching Jesus' wounds that Thomas believed. Mm-hmm. It's in touching our woundedness mm-hmm. and our invitation to each other to to be with each other in suffering and to see it. Mm. It's in that that there's often healing mm. um, or the courage to keep going yep. or find hope. 
It's in touching our woundedness. And from my uncle Patrick, who's got a whole lot of, he's, he's living through the wounds right now. He's opened himself to being willing to be approached and touched in that um, realm of, of, um, sharing life. Mm. He, he's not hiding away because yep. he's no longer able to be an active priest yep. in a parish. Yep. So I would say that passage, um, has been really enlightening to me. And then the other one is from when wine tasting, we're, we're here in the wine country, right? <laughs> Absolutely. When wine tasting at, um, Lady Hill Winery right by Shampooey the other night and was was talking to a farmer there. And I asked him, all right, tell me, what, what do you think is mm-hmm. aging well? Mm-hmm. And he pointed me to this passage in John 21. Mm-hmm. And um, I never thought of this as a passage about aging. So I'm going to read it. It's so good. Okay, again, we're in the resurrection season. Jesus is risen from the dead. Um, and he goes to find the disciples at Sea of Tiberias and he's making this campfire and, and making some fish breakfast for him. Right. 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 Okay. So John 21, 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he goes through and he asked Peter three times following Jesus's recent denial of (laughs) knowing Christ three times. Now Jesus is asking him three times, Mm -hmm. do you love me? Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I read recently that it's phileo love, brotherly love, and then he changes it in the last question to agape love. Do you agape love me? Mm-hmm. Right after that, Jesus says, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you got yourself dressed, you walked where mm-hmm. you would. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will get you dressed and carry you where you do not wish to go. This he said to show by what death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. So I always saw that as um, Jesus or Peter's upcoming martyrdom. But it was this invitation, follow me. Follow me, Peter, in agape love. You're not defined by these past mistakes of denying me, but keep your eyes forward and follow me. Follow me all the way through the suffering, past it. Mm. It's not going to end there. Follow me past the suffering in agape love. And you're going to lose your independence. You're going to lose some control here in this process. But keep going. Um, Accept it. Not all of us are going to be called the martyrdom, but all of us, if we are so lucky to be able to age, (laughs) to be able to live long enough to live um, is to grow old. Uh, I have heard um, that quoted often. And, And so eventually, if we make it long enough, we're going to reach a part where we're going to need help from others. And and instead of resisting that and dreading that, if we can see it as it's going to change the people around us too in a way mm-hmm. that's good for them also, mm-hmm. you know, to care outside. And so let's just go through it together. Let's be willing to follow in agape love our Lord no matter what that path looks like. Yeah. Thank you so much. I've never heard that verse in John ever used that way. I agree with you. I've, I've heard it as discipleship or numb, but I've never heard it with aging, but I see it. Yeah, I, I hadn't either until he said that. Yeah. And, and then he said, now, Erica, the real the, the real answer for aging well is a cellar at 55 degrees, you know, for, yeah. us, for this Pinot Noir to really exactly. reach it. <laughs> exactly. it's, it's peak, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. I love it. But um, yeah, just the more I meditate on that passage, I just think, wow, that that letting go of control and accepting and being willing to love through that. Yeah. That's my goal. That's how I want to age. Me too. Me too. Thank you so much for sharing that.
Thank you so much for um, sharing scripture with us this morning in faith mm -hmm. and talking about aging, what it looks like, resiliency. I just want to thank you again for being a great, um, having this great conversation today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's been fun. Yeah. This has been a production of George Fox Digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to George Fox Talks on Apple, Spotify, or whatever you're streaming on. Check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And we're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash georgefoxtalks. <laughs>